So when he grabbed the crocodile, he fell overboard. The police force became untrustworthy. The hospitals fell apart. So everything fell apart, black and white. We were boys, everybody knew how to shoot a gun, and it wasn't strange, it was just, yeah, obviously, war is not a joke. I was kneeling under a tree, and I was praying, and I said, God, I can't do this thing. You better help. I know I killed it. So I know there is a God. And it's not just a pie in the sky. This is a conversation I had with my father, Richard de Clark. It's full of adventure, humor, stories of a older Africa. It also gets quite raw, personal, and I want to thank Pa for being so transparent with me and virtually anyone that chooses to listen to it. It's one of those conversations you wish everyone could hear. Okay. Let's switch to English. <laughs> uh, pa, what was it like growing up in South Africa in the 60s and 70s? You start with the big guns. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about your, your childhood growing up. I grew up, obviously, I think, just normal. It was a carefree environment. The 60s and 70s, South Africa was a bit sheltered from the world's movement of freedom and the hippies. It only came to South Africa a bit later. So 60s, 70s were sort of free of those um, radical uh, viewpoints. It was just a nice, carefree environment. People didn't have lots of material things, but everybody was content, I think. Yeah. Mm. Who were some of your role models growing up? What, what, what molded you? Well, obviously your parents. Mum used to take us to the church all the time. Dad wasn't much of a church goer, but the church played a big part. And then later on, as we grew older, um, there was a man by the name of Hendrik von Ersten, which had ch children about my age. And he was a big role model in my life. We used to go to there, they had a dairy farm, so used to go there many times. And that was a big influence in where I sort of ended up going. And I guess um, dad had friends that was younger than him, a man by the name of Kurs Olkers, which was sort of in the age group between us and our parents. He was a big influence in our lives. He was always uh, doing something energetic that I guess your parents wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't do. But so it was nice. I think I had a very balanced childhood with lots of external influences. Yeah. With grandma taking you to church, that would have been the Adventist church. Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, most other people would have been Dutch Reform, Enchia, right? Dutch Reform church, yes. So were you a minority in that sense? Was yes. That um, it, it made a big difference in our lives because we grew up 
we meaning me and my brothers, sort of different. Uh, at school, we nothing was done against us because we were not the normal. Most people went to the Dutch Reformed Church, and that sort of influenced everything, school and activities and whatever. Because we were different, Seventh-day Adventists go to church on Saturdays, so our Sabbath was Friday night to Saturday night, which made us not able to con um, contribute or participate in many of the normal school activities. But somehow the school was very accommodating. Um, some of the plays that we like, school, you have plays and things, they, we did it in the weeknights and then on Friday night they shoveled it around. So even though we were different, we were accommodated in many ways. In sport, we were, we never, was able to play in the first team of the school rugby because it was Saturdays involved. But we played second team and third team mm -hmm. and we did gymnastics and other sports. So in a sense, everybody knew that we were different, but we were accepted for that. So I think it was a good thing for us. It taught us to be ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Obviously, we didn't drink and smoke and uh, go to all the clubs and things. Not that where I grew up, there wasn't many of that anyway. Mm. We were in the country and there wasn't that influence we were. But a lot of the kids, you know, smoked behind the toilets in the school. Mm. We, we didn't do. But many other kids didn't as well. So, mm. yeah. it, uh, nicer than to grow up with... Uh, other Christian denominations rather than um, growing up in a very secular environment or a very secular school? South Africa then was very Christian orientated. The, in the whole society was, Christianity was the norm, mm. um, other than today, obviously. But then not being a Christian was different. Mm. Yeah. So even though... We were Seventh-day Adventists. There were many other denominations, and Christianity was accepted mm. throughout. And in the schools, Christianity was upheld in a in a high regard. So it, it wasn't strange to say I'm a Christian. Growing up, being told bedtime stories and campfire stories and things of that nature, always... I remember thinking that the stories you used to tell us kids seemed like they came out of a, a children's book. The stories of uh, African animals, of crocodiles and leopards and camping and all sorts of things. And I only vaguely remember a few of them. Would you mind sharing, perhaps starting with, with Grandpa taking you guys camping deep in the bush? How? Uh, yes. And um, where? Africa was in the process of changing, but it was still wild in many ways. It wasn't like the old Africa anymore, but there were still many places with wild animals available. And in the town that I grew up, there was like a little stream growing through the middle, flowing through the middle of the town. And even in there sometimes was 
wild animals like antelope. And so as little boys, we made bows and arrows and, you know, grew up in that environment. So my father was a person that loved to go to the not so normal places for holidays. So uh, we always, at least once a year, for three or four weeks, went to Namibia, to Botswana, to places where there was not a lot of people. Um, and like I said, even just around us, a lot of my friends grew up or lived on farms. So on the farms were still wild leopards and animals. So it gave us the exposure to that lifestyle. Um, I remember you mentioned the leopard story. I can't remember exactly how old, but we were like 10, 12 year old boys, lots of energy and enthusiasm. So we went camping on my friend's farm and wanted to do our own thing because we're big now. And our pair, my father and his father was luckily, I don't know, wise or stupid enough mm. to let us be because they knew that there were wild, dangerous animals around. But uh, we went camping and carried our stuff and, you know, made a fire. And they just came. I remember just before dark, my father and his father came. We were four boys, but the, my parents came around, my father and just said, all right, if you got not enough firewood for the night, then just make sure the fire is going. And oh, we didn't worry one bit. We, we, <laughs> we were on a roll. And I remember we decided between ourselves that we will stand guard all night. There would be one on guard duty all the time. I don't know if we did, can't remember. <laughs> but during the night, we could hear something out in the dark and in the morning my parents came and they were sort of looking around and we could find the tracks of the leopard circling the campsite during the night so if it wasn't for the fire it probably would have come closer that was really exciting for <laughs> us as boys <laughs> it was a leopard <laughs> and um it made our imagination grow wild. I remember during that day, we were there were some caves in the mountains and we were going to go to the caves. So on our way there, we said, what will we do if the leopard is in the caves? And talked it up and talked it up. And by the time we got to the caves, we were so focused <laughs> on this leopard in the cave. <laughs> anyway, we went in but hesitant, but oh, we're going to explore the caves. And as we were halfway, you know, in the dark, in the cave, lots of the bats that were sleeping inside the cave decided to flew out past us. We just screamed, leopard, <laughs> and ran as fast as we could down the hill, down the mountain. 
scared to death. <laughs> but it was the way we grew up. And I remember that night walking back home, every tree under which we pass, we look with the torch <laughs> flashlight to the leopards. Nothing, of course, but it's just a beautiful way to grow up. Mm. Yeah. The fire it keeps um, predatory animals away? It doesn't attract them? No. Um, it's only rhinos that it is attracted, but there were no rhinos there. Mm. So other animals, yeah, sort of shy away from fire. So it's good. Which times where grandpa used to take you far out, which of those trips uh, were quite memorable to you? Almost all of them. <clears throat> um, I remember that they had a Land Rover with a roof rack on the top, which was our favorite place so once we're in off the roads in the wild we would sit on top of the Land Rover and I remember once we were we were following a group of lions um, sometimes you could see them in front of us and sometimes they would go into scrubby area but we were sitting on the top of the Land Rover open and, and I guess dad would evaluate when it's safe or not but and things like that I remember we came to uh, like there was a it was open grass area and we came to an area with sort of medium height scrubby trees and the lions went in there and dad said all right get off the roof climb in while we were going through there and things like that. But on that same trip, we were we were with another family with a Land Rover and a tent and things. And we were camping on a river bank and there was a bushfire coming towards a big fire from somewhere else. And dad and a lot of the adults went with a vehicle over the through the river, I guess to try and stop the fire coming towards us or whatever they did. But we stayed with the tents, and I can't remember which of the adults were still with us. But you could see the the even the lions and, and animals came from the fire through the river at our tents not worrying about us because the fire was the big thing for them then. Um, memories like that, that sort of stick in your mind. Um, another time was we were in the Kalahari Gemsburg Park, which is uh, sort of a semi-desert area, and we were having lunch on the sand dunes. That stopped. The road is sort of in the riverbed, and we were having lunch and playing on the sand dunes and as we were looking over the sand dunes there was lions just on the other side of the dune which nobody knew about eventually and what a big excitement that was <laughs> um, everybody all of a sudden decided the picnic is over um, but yeah so we grew up in a time when 
there was still space to live. Can you tell me the story about the man with the with the hunched back and the crocodile, where that was? And Yes. Dad decided that he wanted to go to a place where um, in the Okavango swamps, which is in the northern area of Botswana, Okavango swamps is fairly well known now, but back in those days, it was not as much controlled. It was just there. And um, there were game reserves, but there were no fences. And you get to a gate on the road, and then all of a sudden you're in the game reserve. But, I mean, there's no difference all around. Um, there was a... In the beginning of crocodile skins becoming popular for handbags and clothing and shoes and um, they became a market for crocodile skins obviously and back then they caught them in the wild and then later on crocodiles were being farmed there was a camp a well-known I can't remember the name no there was a well-known camp where the first crocodile hunters used to catch crocodiles and dad wanted to go there, but it wasn't sort of marked on the road. I don't know where dad found the guide or person, but dad found a person that used to work there in his younger days for one of the crocodile catchers. And he was going to take us there. Um, so we met this guy somewhere under a tree. I remember mom said, where are we going? Because, you know, there's no roads. And dad said, no, this is the way. And there was a big tree and there was this guy standing under the tree. <laughs> I don't know how dad knew where the tree was, but I know we don't care. But so there was this guy and big beard and black hair and shirt open and... Uh, he was the guide, and I remember Dad said to Mom, "Go and stand next to him. We can take a photo." And Mom, I don't want to stand there. It was a bit anyway. <laughs> he took us to the place on the Okavango swamps, um, but it took us a while. I can't remember how long. A few days to get there with this guy, and on the way, he. For us as boys, he was the hero, sort of a thing. And he showed us, he went one day and came back out of the bush with quails that he caught and he made us a stew out of wild peanuts and quails. And wow, you know, it was just amazing for us as children. Um, I can't remember how old we were. Um, I can't remember, but smallish. Anyway, um, he walked with a hunch back, and we just said, Mom, why is he walking like that? And Mom says, shut up. <laughs> Don't talk about things like that. But we were so curious, why would he walk like that? 
and eventually, I don't know if he heard or whatever, but he showed us the scar on his chest and he told us the story that apparently when you catch the crocodiles with the spotlight at night, it's difficult to distinguish between adult and small crocodiles. So they obviously don't want to catch big crocodiles at night because they used, then they caught little baby crocodiles and then started to sell it to the crocodile farms. So when he, you on a boat with a spotlight, you see the little eyes of the crocodile and then you go and grab the crocodile and put it in the boat. But he made a mistake and it was a big crocodile. So when he grabbed the crocodile, he fell overboard and he realized that the only way not to be bitten by the crocodile was to hold on to the crocodile. And the crocodile did his thing and he just held on and rolled and turned and eventually the crocodile went under, as they do, and he lost consciousness. And in the process, the crocodile hit him with its tail back into the boat out of the water, back to the boat. And he had this big scar. And he was all of a sudden a bigger hero. <laughs> um, so when we got to the place, Dad had a boat. We had a little a boat on the roof rack of the Land Rover. So all we want is for him to catch a crocodile. <laughs> Dad, we want the crocodile. <laughs> but my mother, I think she died several deaths <laughs> with us growing up. She said, not on, no way in this world will you go and catch. But we kept on and Dad said, yeah, all right, we'll go catch a crocodile. <laughs> so we went out and it's amazing, the eyes of the crocodiles, little crocodiles on the water. And he caught us a baby crocodile. And it was just magic. We had a crocodile. <laughs> and by the time that it was time to go home, mom said, all right, let the crocodile go. Well, we had none of that. <laughs> no, there's no way that we would let the crocodile go. So we kept the crocodile. Dad, I remember he took wet newspaper and towels and... Um, we were not the only family there. There was a caravan. And obviously you couldn't take the crocodile over the border. So dad hid it under the tents where the caravan tents were there. And we brought it back home to South Africa and we had a crocodile. <laughs> and we turned the boat upside down and we shot birds with a slingshot and we fed the crocodile and uh, we were the, the heroes at school because we <laughs> had a crocodile. And it shows you how society was back then. Um, the crocodile got a bit tamed and you know you scratch him behind his head and he lay there with his mouth open until dad decided it's too big, it's time to get rid of the crocodile. To our horror. How big was it when he decided? I can't remember exactly. Yeah, okay. um, Dad, 
made friends with someone that worked in Pretoria Zoo. And they came and uh, looked and took the crocodile to the zoo. So that was the end of our crocodile. Magic experiences, yes. Yeah. Mm. Moving forward past your youth and schooling, when it came time for national service, now in South Africa, um, it was mandatory to serve two years in the military. It started off with not two years, I think it was six months, and then a year. Every, every boy that left school had to do military service unless you went, you can ask if you want to go and study, but then when you finished with the degree or whatever you did, you had to do the military service, and then it became two years. By the time I left school, it was two years, yes. How did, how did you feel, and perhaps the young lads around you, feel about having to do two years of military? Was it um, exciting, something to look forward to? Was it something that was a bit of a pain in the backside, an inconvenience? Obviously, um, there were all of those, mm. but most of us were excited and eager and willing. There were, um, obviously there were some that didn't, but most of us, it was sort of an honor and the whole of society has treated it like that. The boys that went to the border, call it then, um, were looked after when they come home. They were, everybody was sort of supporting and it was, it wasn't a drudge, a is that the right word, a drudge? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so I was fairly excited to go. Yeah. We were boys, everybody knew how to shoot a gun and it wasn't strange, it was just we're going to go camping in our naive stupidity. Yeah, obviously war is not a joke, but... Yeah. Can you give just a very brief... Uh, just some context to those who may not know the history around then uh, with the border war and, and what the context was, why there was mandatory service at that point. Um, originally, there were war in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, and then there were unrest in Angola, um, which is South Africa's right on the southern tip, then you get Namibia, then you get Angola. So it wasn't on South African border, but uh, it was on the Namibia border, right on the top. So South Africa supported Namibia and some of the forces in Angola against the war. We believed that it was against communism. Um, so in a process of preventing it from coming down to South African border. So um, by the time I went, it wasn't just, it was still the main border front was Angola and Namibia, but uh, Mozambique also had a civil war and I was placed on the South African Mozambique border. 
preventing it from coming into South Africa. And there was uh, a lot of civilians that tried to cross the border. So it was sort of controlling and managing that. So there were sort of unrest all around South Africa. So that is what it was. Do you remember what year off the top of your head that you... I finished school in 79 and I went to agricultural college in 8081. Then I went to the military 82, 83. So you could study, you could choose to study first, but then you'd have to... Yeah, you, um, if you're not, if you didn't go and study, you go okay. straight after school. So a lot of the boys were 18 years old. I studied two years and then I went. So I was, I turned 21 while I was in, in the military. Yeah. Okay. So at that point, the, the perception was more that there's unrest in the countries up north and we're just keeping South Africa secure. It wasn't like South Africa was that imminent threat. No, it wasn't. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what was your experience uh, during that time on the border with Mozambique and what was your role and, and some of your experiences there? It wasn't as active as it was up north. A lot of the action was between the, the civil war factions with every now and then a group crossing and trying to prove a point or do something. So uh, my role, because I studied agriculture, was more in supporting the local farmers in staying uh, functional in their way of earning a living. So we help local farmers in growing crops and cattle breeding. And there was veterinarians in the same we were sort of about 12, 12 military blokes living in a in a house somewhere like an old farmhouse on the Mozambican uh, on the in, on the South African side but helping, on the border helping the Mozambican farmers uh, helping not in Mozambique on the South African side because. Um, the local population sort of crosses up and down and okay. through. So um, the idea was to keep the local population as positive towards the South African government, um, preventing them from becoming hostile and okay. so forth. Yeah. Okay. So... Tell me some of the memories you had there, staying in this house with 12 other chaps um, in your time there. It, to me, it was a really nice time. Um, I did what I enjoyed, I, what I loved. Uh, obviously, we were in uniform, and, but uh, I was helping people. They were people doing different things. There was a group that provide drinking water, uh, pumps and stuff. I was on the farming side. There was the veterinarians. Um, then there were intelligence people that sort of just talked with uh, chiefs and stuff. So it was sort of a mixed group. Um, so I had a little motorbike, 
like a postie with a big box on the back. I had a dog with me, just going around with me all the time. So it was, it wasn't in a in a war zone like up north. So it was a it was a nice experience. We could see the evidence of war. Um, one night they a group sort of attacked and shot the house that we stayed in to pieces. Um, luckily, no one got hurt. So it was sort of just on the fringes of really active. Uh, Where was order. everyone when the house got shot up? I wasn't in the house. I was visiting someone in a nearby town. I think most of the other guys were in the house. So they had... RPG sevens on the each corner of the house, so that you couldn't leave the house really. So the only weapons that we had was uh, rifles. So when the first rocket launcher came through the wall, uh, everybody <laughs> was asleep and half dressed. Or undressed, and so it was a scramble, and but somehow nobody got it. One guy had a bit of a shrapnel wound on his back. Um, the one of the rockets went right through where my bed was, where my pillow was. So if I was there, I would have been not here. And I've got photos. The house was sort of in bits and pieces. Doors was in threats but no one was hurt luckily and somehow they left i don't know if they were didn't expect us to return fire as we did or whether they thought they proved the point or whatever so at the same time they also attacked the police station which was on the other side of the river and then they disappeared back into uh, mozambique um from a situation that was quite relaxed, quite um, easygoing, did that sort of tense everyone up after that? Yes, all of a sudden there were more rules and regulations, <laughs> um, but not dramatically. We still did what we did. Um, we changed, we sandbagged the house better. Um, we lined the walls on the inside of the house with sandbags and put sandbags on in front of the door. So it changed the it a bit, but it wasn't it wasn't too bad. Apart from that, were there other any close calls or was that about the On me, no, I wasn't really no, that was the only real live fire contact that I was involved in. Okay. You're you're one of four brothers yes um was any of our family members my uncles or anyone else involved in the war in, in some capacity yes the brother that is younger than me martin was a medic he was more hands-on involved um, my oldest brother was part of the chaplain's group that supported the people on the 
also he wasn't so involved like my younger brother. I'm not sure if my youngest brother, I think by the time he grew up, it was sort of over. Okay. I may be wrong, but I think so. Okay. So was was there ever a sense of concern for where your brothers were? Not really. I guess there was, there was concern, but it was so part of life then. Mm. Everybody was yeah. just yeah. there. So I guess you should ask my parents mm. that, but for us, it was, that was life there. Okay. Speaking on the conflict and um, South Africa at that time. Now, I grew up in South Africa just for a handful of years, about five, six years, in the late 90s, which was a very different South Africa to the South Africa you grew up politically and and um, and you would have had a good panoramic view of the change that I was young. I didn't know any different. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the South Africa you grew up in and the one I grew up in and the differences and changes involved by the time that I grew up in South Africa and perhaps experiencing a South Africa that you hadn't? I can only speak from my perspective. Yes. Obviously, people that grew up in a different area or like in the cities may have been different than my experience. But when we grew up, we were taught to respect black people. My father always taught us if we spoke to a black adult, that we should treat him the way we should treat him. Um, we, I grew up not feeling, obviously there was a difference between black and white, but I didn't grow up with a hatred or a, a feeling that I am more valuable than anybody else. Um, circumstances, I mean, they, it was different. They, on the farms, they had different lifestyles than we had. They did different work than we did, but we grew up playing with black kids. I, on the farms, um, even though they were like, they were working for us, but I think there was a lot more respect both ways. Obviously, later on in time, politics messed it up. Um, it changed to a situation where a lot of the trust was lost on both sides. So um, just for some context, Paul grew up in apartheid, South Africa, it literally translated apartness where there was racial segregation with uh, public and enemies and services and uh, schools as yeah, well. Yeah, schools were separate. Black kids went to their Churches. own schools, own hospitals, their own, everything was separate, yes. And that was the South Africa you grew up in. So um, when did it, where you grew up 
and the area you grew up in, your experience, when did it start to change? When did it start to become a more tense, more volatile, more? Well, by the time I start working on the farms and the politics, the clerk was prime minister. It became a big struggle to change the government from black from white to black. So it was sort of a gradual, say, 80s, late 80s. Because Mandela took over in 94, mm. so mm. mid-80s onwards. I, I wasn't... There was lots of political stuff happening in South Africa, which wasn't... I wasn't that involved in, so I not... Where I was on the farms, even though things went pear-shaped, we still treated black people as respectful as we could. We still provide... Originally, black people looked up to the farmers as their providers. We provided food, we provided medical service, everything. And we still... It, we still had that way of life, even though it changed. <clears throat> lots of the black people still looked up to us for guidance and for whatever they needed. So lots of the black people on the farms wasn't so sucked into the political milieu. So... The troublemakers that was not always in the beginning local, it became more mixed up later on. But where I was, it was not so quick. Yeah. You mentioned earlier when you grew up, it was also a lot safer. So the violence become more prominent in South Africa as a result of the political tension and changes and and so on? Yeah, with the political violence came just criminal violence. So um, there was a huge criminal aspect. So people got broken into and it became... Uh, free card for criminals, which I think had a big impact. Um, stock theft and those sort of things became a lot more of a problem than what it was. So when, when the government had changed, it would have been a big, irregardless of the situation beforehand and what was good, what was bad, it would have been a big change for everyone involved. Um, especially transitioning from a white minority government to a black majority government, was there a sense of um, uncertainty and insecurity? Yes, all of a sudden everything was different. Mm. Um, the black government came in and the police force changed. Um, it got flooded with 
um, black radical people. Mm. Um, so the police force became untrustworthy. The hospitals fell apart. And a lot of people I know say, yeah, it's just now white people getting their own thing back. But even the black people that worked for me didn't want to go to the police force anymore. The black people that worked for me didn't want to go to the hospitals anymore because they got they got no treatment at all. Um, they were unsafe. Um, even in the hospitals, their stuff was stolen. and So everything fell apart, black and white. Mm. Mm. Um, so yeah, everything all of a sudden was just different. And there was no security in what will happen tomorrow. Okay. So after you finished with the military, you um, settled down and went into farming? Yes. After being married and so on and yes. so forth. Um, so we, us kids grew up on Renosterland, literally translated rhino land. Um, and I have some memories of the farm there and then moving to Australia. I've got some memories of Collaroy Station. I know there was another farm, Tum Tumbridge. 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 And then Talbragar Park. Um so there's a good decade, 15 years of farming in different locations from South Africa and Australia and different areas. Um, where did you enjoy your farming the most? And and on that, can you tell me just a little bit different of the characteristics of the different farms we were at? And um... Well, I enjoyed farming, period. <laughs> um, in South Africa, we were corn and cattle. Um, then we moved to Australia, 2001. And um, it was mainly cattle uh, at first. And then at Talbaga Park, it became cattle, irrigation, and Australian winter cropping, which was wheat and barley and oats, those sort of things. It was a big, it was a change for me from South Africa to Australia. I mean, farming is basic the same thing, but it's different. I don't know what do you mean with the different farming. Well, I I, I know every farm is sort of a little different. I know, uh, for example, Tabraga Park. There's a lot of mm. irrigation and yes. Um, where before that was mainly cattle. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it, it, you didn't have a preference in whether it was sheep or cattle or irrigation mm -hmm. or. I don't like sheep. Sheep's horrible. So I'm not a sheep man. <laughs> but I, I, there was sheep on, in the beginning on, Colorado uh, Station a lot. But I cattle or cropping. Irrigation, it, I loved it. It mm. was Australia um, was difficult for me because I had to adjust and family adjustments and whatever. But it opened my career to a lot of. I think I grew a lot 
by learning new things and being exposed to different things. So it was a benefit in that way for me. Can you talk to me a little bit about the... Uh, we grew up with the cattle dogs on the farm, and to me they were uh, just our pets, but to you they were um, to some degree workers as well. Uh, was that something that you learnt as well? It was new to you working with cattle dogs? And It was very new to me. In South Africa, we never used dogs. So it was completely new. When I got to Australia, everybody had a dog. Someone, because I was looking for a dog, someone heard that I looked for a dog and knew of another dog. and So I was given a, a black and tan Kelpie Beach, um, by the name of Witchy as a present. Um, she came from a house where she wasn't uh, welcome. People didn't want her anymore. And she taught me. Um, I didn't know anything. She was so excited to work and I probably gave her a hard time <laughs> by not knowing, but all I had to do was give her a gap. She, she was so eager to work. Yeah. So, was she trained beforehand, or was that something Kelpies have? Uh... Um, I don't know to what extent she was trained. Obviously, she must have been trained a little bit. But Kelpies sort of—that's what they do. She was very. She had a lot of initiative. I think. I don't know what she was taught before. She must have been taught something. I don't know her history, but yeah, I yelled at her in Afrikaans many times <laughs> out of frustration, <laughs> and she still did her thing. So, and then after her, I got a few other dogs, and I learned a little bit more. And yeah, because I remember being young and just uh, listening to you whistle and command and seeing the dogs maneuver around and just thinking, what is this? What is this magic? What, uh, it is magic. Yeah, just it's how really nice. dog and man can communicate and yeah. work together like that. I, I remember being fascinated by it, being young. Yeah, it's, it, to me, it was amazing. I am not the best dog handler, but the little bit I learned from Wichi, mm. <laughs> it is amazing. I loved it. Yeah. Mm. Um, through your time farming, is there any, 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 times or experiences you can think of um i knew that there was a lot of stress at times i knew that times you'd be harvesting day and night you'd sleep under the tractor um were there incidents on the farms um something that um that comes to mind something memorable i have a lot of memories um i worked for really nice people back in south africa i have a lot of respect for them and almost see them as my family. That was very good to me too. So from that, I moved to Australia now all of a sudden new. Um, the first person I worked for was difficult. It was very difficult because you are not yourself emotionally. I mean, you try and be as much as you can, but you have to deal with immigration was harder than I thought. So you have to deal with 
family issues, with financial issues, with emotional issues, and then trying to start a new job. And so as much as you want to think you yourself, you are not yourself. So I, the first job was difficult for me. And the man that I worked for was not easy himself. I stayed there six months and then I left. And uh, luckily I got casual work enough to the end of the year. And after the first year I got to work for John O'Brien, which I have a lot of respect for. Um, so in the beginning it was hard too. It was difficult. We didn't have a... Um, we did have a house, but we were used to a nice house back in South Africa, a big house. So we lived in a small little house. Um, John built us a new house, but that took time. I stayed there for 10 years. And, um, I worked hard. I think I gave as much as I could. But John did too. John was good to me. And I really appreciated that. It was mm. good. Um, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Um, <clears throat> I had a little bit of freedom to make decisions and do my thing, which was important to me. Learned irrigation, which I was not as experienced in so in general it was it was Richard my oldest son grew up and was old enough to help a little bit on the farm so that was nice um, you were just 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 not big enough um, obviously there were difficult times made mistakes and I had to face up <laughs> And, but it was it. I'm thankful mm. for the time I had there. Yeah. And I also, um, I know your your childhood was uh, perhaps a little bit more wild. But I still, um, in comparison to the friends I grew up with and made in Australia, also feel quite lucky for the freedom you gave um, for us kids growing up on. Taubga on the farm and uh, even at the Nusseland for Mareska and Richard with uh, having animals and uh, giving me the freedom to go and after school take the motorbike and uh, 22 and, the, and go shoot rabbits and fo and just letting me be and develop and giving me that um, that freedom. I, many times I think I, I don't know if I would feel comfortable allowing my son to do what you allowed me to do but it, looking at I appreciate it so much and horses and giving us and letting us teaching us how to drive with the ute and tractors and machinery and I think it does young people young person really good yeah I got into trouble a fair bit with your mum <laughs> <laughs> but it's good I thought it was a good way Mm. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate it, and I think it did us kids good as well. Yeah, um, one of the 
the sad parts of leaving the farm is the way that my children grew up later on. I mean, so that was a big price that I paid. But I mean, life does what life mm. does. Mm. Um, can you tell me about, I don't know if this was at Collaroy or Tunbridge, I think it was Collaroy. Can you tell me about uh, the incident with your back <clears throat> and the quad bike? And, and now that I'm older, what exactly happened there? Um, we were mastering cattle. I was on a quad bike. The bike that I had didn't have brakes on it because the guy that I worked for didn't want to fix it spend the money to fix it. So we worked with it just the way it is. I was on the one, there was a deep gully cliff or whatever you can call it. So I was on the one side with Witchy, pushing the cattle. And at one stage I had to turn around. I, the route that I took, I couldn't continue. So I turned the bike and I had to use the throttle as a brake. And I slipped up, I throttled it too much and it sort of lifted its front end because I was at an angle and it fell backwards with me. So we rolled down the mountain and I fell in behind a rock and a big gum tree. And the motorbike slammed in just above me into the tree. So if it wasn't for the rock, the bike would have squashed me into the tree. And then the bike went down the gully and I stayed there. With the back, the motorbike coming back, I blocked it with my legs and it squashed one of the lower vertebras in my back. So I crawled up to where they could find me, they were looking for me. So then they got me on the back of another quad bike out to where the youth could reach and then back home. And that is the story, I guess. Yeah. Did you know, uh, um, were you not able to walk? I couldn't walk, it was so sore. Mm. Okay, so you knew straight away something Something yeah, obviously I couldn't walk. It was just too sore. Um, we went to the doctor in a small little town, had a doctor there. And he said, I don't know, you have to go to a bigger town, have a bigger doctor. So mum put me in the car with the seat back and then there they took x-rays and said the back was, <clears throat> the vertebra was squashed. So there was not much they could do to it then other than just I have to lay down and rest it. So how long then time off work did that take? And I assume that would have put a lot of stress and pressure on. Yes, obviously the guy I worked for was a bit stressed out because he was worried that I would sue him, which I didn't do. I rested until I felt I could, I started walking hand on my hands and my knees. 
And then as I could and went back to work, yeah. Um, I never had an operation or plates put in, which I am very thankful for. And I am thankful that I am walking. Mm. Yeah, so it's good. I, I have <coughs> a very vivid, very vivid memory. There's few of them when I was that young, but I remember Ma opening the door and I'm standing by Ma and I can see you holding your back and she's asking, what's wrong now? And he's <laughs> just looking at her. And, and remember uh, not understanding understanding at first why you couldn't pick us up and throw us around. And, and um, But like you said, thank God you can walk and, and uh, yeah. Do you miss farming? I do miss a lot of the aspects of farming, um, especially because I think that's who I am. Mm. I was thankful to have a bit of a break too. Yes. But I do miss farming, yes. That hang gliding accident you had. Oh <laughs> what what went wrong there and and how did you come out of that without a broken vertebrae in your back? Yeah, that was another big one. I was fresh. I was still I did the course and I was still learning, really. Um, I went with friends to a place near Canberra where there's a huge plateau and sometimes the sea breeze comes up the mountain, but there was a highway and then sort of a hill and we were flying, there were trees on the hillside of it. So we jumped off somewhere up a cliff and the idea was that the sea breeze would give us the ability to fly all along this edge. The sea breeze was not as strong as we were hoping it would be. The idea was that to cross the highway and land on the other side, that was the only place. But I was struggling just to stay above the trees, sort of going, 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 and I could see the faces of the truck drivers on my right hand side and I was, I guess I was scared and not confident enough yet what to do and how to do. I was scared that if I crossed the highway and somehow ended up in traffic before I landed. So I was trying to battle, you know, you go up and down, up and down a bit and I missed my opportunity to cross. And the wing clipped one of the trees and I fell. I, something always looks bigger when, you, when you're falling in it, <laughs> but it was big gum trees, as big as you can get the gum trees. And uh, I don't know, I survived. Without, I've got I had bruises and was black and blue. I would like to think I had my wits with me that I rolled when I landed or whatever, but I just fell. And uh, everybody had a big fright. They came and picked my glider up and I didn't go to hospital or anything. I didn't want to because I didn't want to lose gliding license so I don't know I was scared that I there might be 
repercussions. So just fixed my glider, wait until I got better. I was sore for a long time. I think I still, I the, the jerk of the glider on my, I don't know if the ligaments in my elbows or something, I couldn't play squash for a long time. I still now, if I play squash, my elbows after a while hurts like crazy. So I think I carried that over from that. I, but it's all right. Hmm. Yeah. You, you know, it doesn't bother you on day to day, does no, it? No, no, it's, 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 it was sore for a long time. Um, it's all right. Uh, yeah. Speaking on these sorts of uh, accidents and things, have there been times where you, you thought this is it? Have there been some close calls, some near-death experiences that you can call on? I had a few close calls in my life. When I was young um, and stupid, I thought I could ride any horse. <laughs> I went with friends and tried to ride a horse that they couldn't, which fell backwards. They had a, a, a yard, a cattle yards with rock walls. And then on the inside, in the center of it was a steel post where they tied cattle to or whatever. And I fell backwards with the horse right next to that steel post. I didn't, yeah, luckily I, I got out all right. I rode the horse, <laughs> but that was close. That was close. That was one. I had a motor car accident where I was going stupidly fast um, and lost control and spun a few times in the air and crushed. And I crawled out of there with a few scars and concussion, but I survived it. I don't know if my brother would remember it. I don't know what his recollection of it was, but once we were trying, there was a building in South Africa where everybody was not allowed to go up to the top floors because there were fancy units with the swimming pool and whatever. And we thought that if we climbed through a window on one end and on the outside of the building to another window to get in, we would be able to get where we were not allowed. And I looked down that night hanging from the bricks and down there was the little cart. I thought, man, yeah. So, but we didn't didn't fall, and then I had the hang glider mm -hmm. and the back. I think me being a Christian, I think God protected and saved me a few times. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Speaking about God and being a Christian, you were always to me and us the a spiritual role model for us kids. And as someone who I look up to spiritually, I'd like to know, have there been times where you doubted your faith, where you doubted God and um, perhaps his existence or perhaps his role in your life? 
Yes. Um, I am not that special. I have made many mistakes, many, many, many big mistakes, but that's beside the point. The question is trusting, have I ever doubted God? <clears throat> I have. There was a time when I grew up. I guess everybody goes through his journey, but I doubted the existence of God. I remember standing in my room with a Bible in my hand. <clears throat> I remember throwing the Bible on the table. I say, it's a load of rubbish. It's just an airy fairy book. Nothing happened. <laughs> there were no fire out of heaven. But, praise God, I don't think like that anymore. I honestly believe that there is a living God and that the Bible is the inspired work of Word of God. <clears throat> and through life, my experience with God did go up and down. And, but God has never failed me. Never, ever, ever, even though I don't deserve it. Have there been times where you, sometimes we don't see them, but have there been times where you've had direct answers to prayer that are undoubted, unquestioned, you know God answered? Yes, I have. And I guess within my family, I believe the story of the lambs is fairly well known. But that wasn't my prayer. That was my children's prayers. When Richard and Mariska, which is my first two kids, were not in school yet, I think, small, my neighbor brought two lambs for them as pets, which didn't have a mother. And I wasn't very happy about that because I knew how easy potty calves or lambs get diarrhea and diseases. But what do you do? There's the lambs and the kids are so excited and they're just so happy. And so we had the two little lambs and looked after them as good as we can. And obviously they got diarrhea. <laughs> I knew it, but I tried everything I could because I raised calves then, and so I had medication and stuff to give them, and I tried all I could. But I could see that one of them especially was going to die. You can see when an animal is dehydrated and the skin doesn't keep its normal and they were just laying on a Hessian bag in the shade there under a tree next, close to my house. And I could, I knew that the lamb was going to die. So I was thinking in my mind, how can I get rid of this lamb without the kids knowing it? And I thought, well, the only way is to strangle the calf, the lamb, because they won't see it. So we were around the lamb there, both of the lambs, but the one was, I had no hope for it. 
I thought it's better to get it out of its misery and get it over and over. So they went into the house or after we gave it medication and did what we could. So I thought, all right, now is my time. So I took the lamb and I put my thumb on its throat and squeezed it. And the poor lamb was kicking and jerking and kicking. And I just choked it until it didn't move anymore. And, but I didn't stop because I know I don't want a lamb with diarrhea and brain damage. <laughs> so I choked it until I was 100% sure there is no chance of this lamb living anymore. Just as I thought, all right, mission accomplished, out came the kids out of the house. And they were very excited. Dad, we've got a plan. And I said, yeah, all right. What's the plan? And they said, no, we decided we're going to pray for the lamb. <laughs> I thought, all right. What can, I can't tell them now you can't pray for the lamb. All my life I taught them that's the thing to do. But I knew the lamb was dead, so what's the point? So they said, no, we're going to pray for the lamb. And I said, yeah, okay, pray for the lamb. And no, Dad, you must come with. <laughs> so we were kneeling on the grass there around the lamb, and they said, all right, Dad, you pray. I said, no, there's no chance. I didn't tell them this, but there's no chance that I'll pray for this lamb. I mean, I just killed it. So I said, no, you can't. it's not my lamb. I'm not praying for this lamb. It's your lamb. If you want to pray, you can pray. Yeah, they had no problem with that. So they both prayed for the lamb and got up and very happily left in the house as if there's no nothing wrong. So now I can't take the lamb away. So I carried it on the Hessian back. Next to the house was like a, a little shed where he stacked the bicycles and the rubbish in. So I've put the lamb on the Hessian back in the little room. I thought, all right, I'll go on with my work. And all the time I've got the lamb in my mind. What have I done? <laughs> anyway, lunchtime came and I came home. <clears throat> and I thought, better check the lamb. <laughs> and I opened the door and there was the lamb. As live as you can be, walking around, no diarrhea, tails going up and down, nothing wrong with it. <laughs> anyway, call the kids. They're so happy. Yeah, we prayed for the lamb. And I didn't tell them anything. I didn't say anything. Just left it. So when Mariska grew up, she started with this nonsense of there is no God. And then I said to her, do you remember the lamb? And she said, yeah, I remember the lamb. 
Then I told her what I did. And I don't know what she'll say, you can ask her, but she never talked to me again about there is no God. And it was, it was, there's no way in the world I know I killed it. So I know there is a God. And it's not just a pie in the sky. And after that, I mean, you go through life and God talks to every person differently. I mean, things happen in my life and I know. I know, like when we went to Australia, when we immigrated to Australia, it was hard. And I know that mum struggled. I mean, to me it was easier because I had a job and I had responsibilities and I was busy and I had to connect with my boss and other people. So um, it kept me going. But mum struggled because she had no friends. She didn't have a job yet. Um, she struggled to connect with anybody. We were on a farm, like way out in Whoop Whoop. And mom was really struggling, eh? And I remember I was, I was kneeling under a tree. And I was praying and I said, God, I can't do this thing. My wife's gone crazy. I don't know how to deal with her. Um, I know she can't deal with it. Um, you better help. And I went home and here comes Cornell smiling <laughs> and happy. And I thought, what? <laughs> what happened? Anyway, Omar Kori was married a few times. So mom had family, she had a cousin or a, another woman that she knew far away, <laughs> faintly related to. All of a sudden, this lady, we knew about them, they were in Australia. She found a mom's telephone number somewhere, rang up, and it was enough to change mom's spirit. Mm. To me, no one will tell me that it's just by accident. So, sorry for <laughs> this, but it's precious, things like that to me. Um, because sometimes now I struggle and when I was sick I got diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy it was hard too I 
I was hanging on a thread emotionally, but I knew I could trust. So it carried you through many times. Um, when things are tough. Having faith makes life so much easier. It doesn't, it doesn't take everything away, but it makes it easier. So I am thankful that I have it. Yeah. I was going to ask, it was something I thought I struggled with, but it seems like it's something that Every Christian struggles with growing up, and uh, you, you you try and and um, I want to be I want to grow up being a godly man. I want to grow up being like my father. I want to grow up being like the characters I read in the Bible. And they all of them very badly have stuffed up and make poor decisions. But I want to grow up serving God and having faith in Him and teaching my kids and uh, and being an example to them and uh, you get momentum and you get on a roll and you get in a rhythm and um, it's not that I doubt the existence of God one bit, not even a little bit. That'll never, I've come to a point where that, that'll never be the case, but you, you stumble and you get distracted and then get back up and you try again and you feel guilty and you stumble and you fall and you get back up and you feel guilty and you try again and in your experience and I've spoken to you before but is what's the trick how do you keep that momentum and is a desire it with a guilty conscious enough is that the life of a Christian is there it um, it's not easy to keep that momentum and no, it is not easy. They say life is not for sissies, <laughs> um, and that includes Christianity. Eh? It's not always. Uh, I speak for myself, only for myself. It's not always easy. Because, like you say, one day you're on a roll and you're on top of the hill and the next day you are full of guilt, eh? And you struggle and you do stuff that you know is not right and, and you, the relationship. I have struggled with that all my life, a lot, a lot. <sighs> to the point where I was considering giving up. Um, I talked about when I was small, but there were times when I was an adult too, where I was thinking, man, this is not good. But I think human beings is so conditioned by society to do things for yourself. And it's an inherent we are born with this thing of, I want to do it my way. So it doesn't take much from society to tell us that you should pick up your socks and do your part. 
And Christianity is sort of flies in the face of that. Christianity says that Christ did it for you. All you have to do is accept it. Some people can accept it and just enjoy it, but I cannot. And I know my children, probably because of the way I treated them and my parents treated me the way I am, I struggle with this thing. I feel that I have to deserve something. And I don't. Doesn't matter how you cut it, I don't. And it makes it hard sometimes because you think I'll try better, I'll try harder. But I have seen in my life the times when I was closest to God is the time when I just spent the time connecting with Him. Um, the times when I spent time in the Bible and, and keeping my mind focused on Christ, that's the time when the good stuff happens. But when it fades and you get busy and you do your thing and you... <clears throat> and that fades, that's when the bad stuff happens. And the beauty of it all is that God has not yet thrown me away. The promise is that I will finish the work which I started in you. And we need to cling, cling to that. God said, as, as long as you don't deliberately force me out of your life, say, I don't want anything to do with you, I'll keep calling you. I mean, you know I'm divorced. <laughs> You're my son. And you run this way, God goes that way. Go this way, God gets you there. Um, I mean, that's probably the time when I felt the most guilty of all. Because I said, how can God love me? I deliberately did something wrong. It's not by accident. It's not... I, I deliberately, knowing this is wrong, did it. Now you want to come and say, God, please forgive me. That's bull. Uh, you can't do that, saying it to myself. So it was hard for me to come back to the point where I realized that God loves me that much. That even then, he didn't reject me. It's amazing to love a God, to serve a God that loves you like that. Um, yeah.
When, when we were kids, I don't know how, how old I was, like, say, mid-primary school. We lived in a town called Nilstrom. Um, and as kids, we played in the street. Always in the street with everybody. And I remember we had visitors that came to visit us. Um, and we were playing in the street. Kids were in the street, running around, and the parents were in the house doing their thing. <clears throat> and we started playing, um, I don't know, back home we called it tok-toki, where you knock on someone's door and then run away and hide. And so we were playing tok-toki in the street, and it was big fun. And there were bigger kids, and we were the little ones tagging along. So knock, 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 run away, and then laugh your head off when this guy, oh, don't knock on my door, who's there, and whatever. But the bigger kids got a bit bored, I guess. They started throwing rocks on people's houses, on the roofs. And in those days, it was all tin roofs. So first kid, wah, big noise on the roof. And it was at night, in the evening. On goes the lights in the house, and everybody run like crazy, hide away. And then people are not just, you know, having fun around. That people come out of the house angry. But, you know out to the next house, big fun. And until one of the boys misjudged it and threw the rock through the front window, big window, glass everywhere. And all of a sudden, I knew as small as I was that the fun is over. <laughs> now it's serious. <laughs> and I ran for home. <laughs> And the guy came out of the house and he was not happy. And he was chasing down the street. And I don't know how my dad knew about it, heard about it, but dad was in the street. And all of a sudden I was behind my dad. And I can, I can remember as a child then, all my tr troubles was over. <laughs> I didn't worry about the troubles that would come later on, but I knew I was behind my dad and I was safe. This bloke running down the street, I had no worries about him. He cannot cross my dad. I was safe. I don't know what they did or what they talked, whatever. I don't know what happened. But I remember that feeling in me as a child is, I'm safe, I'm happy. And I think our Christianity should be like that. Um, it doesn't matter what you did. You were having fun throwing rocks through people's houses and life has a tendency that you know the time comes when fun is over. As long as we run home and stand behind Christ, we're safe. 
Satan cannot cross my dad. Satan cannot go past Christ. So the big thing for us as human beings is to realize that it doesn't have anything to do with what we did, what we didn't do, whether it was good or bad or whatever. It's as long as we are behind Christ, Satan cannot touch us. And that's not easy because you have to come to a point where you have to realize I'm not big enough to face everything in life. It was easy for me as a child to know I can't deal with this thing anymore. But human beings, we try and we try because we think we are, it's expected from us to face life, to deal with things in life, to to do our thing. And Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And the, the challenge is to stay connected. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's, it's something that is often said, but it's not that easy. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if I messed up your questions. No, no, that was that was perfect. Thank you for sitting down and taking time. I, mean, I, w I wanted to keep this one lighthearted, <laughs> <laughs> not not for my sake, but more for yours. I, I feel, but I appreciate being honest and open and transparent. It gives me hope knowing that my person I look up to the most struggles with things that I struggle with and so I really appreciate it thank you Papa. Yeah, no. my pleasure yes <laughs> <laughs> thank you Papa you're welcome it's always lekker for me to work but was and I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to go to Africa.